You're listening to Inspirational Decency, Episode 0, The Burlap Sacrilege. It is the winter of my 48th year. The wind outside blows lazy and slow, like a saxophonist who's just eaten an entire turkey and drank a full glass of warm milk before watching The English Patient. I am beset with despair and brimming over with cake. I stare out the window and I see a man with a hat shaking a bicycle chain at a clown because the clown has insulted the man's favorite meats. Ah, I think at first, two deflated pathetic souls who share my refined sense of succulent misery. But then I see them make up and embrace, thereby confirming the old adage, the friendship between a clown and a hatted man with a bicycle chain is stronger than a bald man's love for foghorns. People always say that. It is so annoying. In any case, this plunges me back into the depths of my pain. Who will love me in my old age? Who will affectionately inject me with anti-screaming serum whenever I start to think about my life? Who will lovingly soak me in orange juice after a long day of vandalizing graveyards for reasons only my late uncle will ever understand? Who will sleep on top of me at night to make sure I don't fall off the roof? Oh, how I ache. Oh, how I moan. Dear listener, I beseech you. Will you marry me underneath a trampoline or on top of a very small bassinet while floating through a community pool? Will we honeymoon in a country where they won't recognize me from the video from my 1988 novelty hit, Baloney Down Below? Ugh, so many regrets. And so many of them are related to my time in the R&B group, Silk Failure. And after our honeymoon, once we begin our new life as a man and wife joined at the neck, where shall we build our home? At the foot of an 80-foot shrine to stupidity? In a tent in the Mojave Desert, with a talking coyote as our mailman? In a damp sack on the porch of the world's worst grandpa? Oh, what a world we shall live in. A world of candy canes, strawberry hatred, and elegant knuckles. And yet, such a world still seems so far away. And so I sit, remembering that people in general still view me as a belligerent oaf, with a face only Frank Zappa and the mothers could love. So what to do? Where to go to relieve my crushing, all-consuming loneliness? Why, where else but this very radio program? My only form of communication with the world outside my underground bunker. Here, then, is my pitch, my very own radio personal ad. I am a man looking for a woman who is honest, hardworking, and tolerates laziness. I am seven foot four, two hundred and something-ish pounds, with a sallow complexion and an interest in quitting. If my friends were asked to describe me, I think they'd say they haven't seen me in nine months. Are you as sick as I am of having conversations? Are you weary of meeting men at parties or hostage negotiations? Are you interested in playing head games? Then I'm the man for you. My hobbies include drifting, piling adjectives, and creating tension. Interested women must be between the ages of 18 and death, with blonde hair shirts and the eyes of a stranger. Please, no handles. If you are interested in meeting me, please stare into the mirror in your bedroom and I will appear. I will be the one wearing the Black Oak Arkansas t-shirt and waving a sign that reads, Mitzi. 
Do not ask me what Mitzi means, or else I will become frightened and I will explode. Well, there you have it. It's open season on love here on Inspirational Decency this week. In keeping with this theme, all of tonight's segments will instill a sense of fuzziness and electricity into your declining souls. Many will feature elves in the background, singing Silk Failure's 1990 smash, A Motion to Dismiss, second only to 1991's Ick on a Stick in the Silk Failure songbook. So prepare yourselves, all and sundry, and let the love flow, unless you have an absorbent cloth that will soak it up. selection from the Canadian National Radio Archives. In this installment, Prime Minister Richard Bennett offers his annual Christmas Eve address to the nation. Air date, December 24th, 1933. Good evening. This is your Prime Minister, Richard Bedford Bennett. Born July 3rd, 1870. Died June 26th, 1947. I enjoy canasta, horsehair coats, and a particular form of water sport known as razor boarding. My quote in my high school yearbook read, Everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody wants a new romance. From the song Working for the Weekend by the Canadian rock group Loverboy. Don't get me started on Loverboy. What a band. What a band. He had one guitar. No, that's not Loverboy. That's foreigner. Honest mistake. Don't make fun. Anyway, enough about me. You are probably tuned into this address, expecting to hear some plan for extracting Canada from the murky depths of this deeply, deeply irritating depression. Failing that, you may be expecting harmless yet unproductive bromides about staying the course and maintaining faith in your country and your leader. I cannot do either of these things. It simply wouldn't be me. And I'm sure you all remember my campaign slogan. Richard Bennett only does what he wants. And don't bother him when he's playing with his squirrel mallet. No, gentle cashews and lady peanuts. I am not inclined to insult your meager intellects by lying to your ruddy, malnourished faces. Instead, I will merely suggest that now is as good a time as any to consider eating each other. Now, I know what you may be thinking upon hearing such a proposal. Should the fattest Canadians be fed to the most emaciated? The answer, of course, is yes. But do remember that we should establish some kind of system whereby the frailest consume the most corpulent, the second weakest devour the second fattest, and so on and so forth. This means that a man whose haunches are as thick and succulent as Al Jolson's sweet vocal harmonies should give himself over to a man whose thighs are as shrunken and weak as my tolerance for dairy. Make it a fun parlor game by screaming into your victim's mouth while he or she screams back, I do not appreciate this. Many a life's partnership between man and wife has begun with such a ritual of feverish consumption can't find a man willing to splay himself on a platter for your delectation? Don't rule out eating yourself. Radical though it may seem at first, it's truly the bee's filthy knees. Who better to chomp into than your juicy, juicy selves? 
to gorge shamelessly on one's own fat as a pastime rivaling the lindy hop or tuberculosis as the new craze of today, with the music and the children dancing and the internal organs and what have you. Truly, from the lips to the hips to the fingertips, self-devouring is a tasty trip. There's truly no beating the taste of your very own homegrown. Mm-hmm, you people are in for a treat. I envy you in a way, but in 84 other ways, I view you all with severe contempt. I am still here for you, though, and let me add this. Anyone who wants to can meet me at Parliament on December 26th to take a swing at me. I will be stripped to the waist and covered in butter all the way to my precious, precious toes. Come one, come all. I will punch a baby. Irishmen welcome. Homeless vagrants must supply proof of pants. This has been your Prime Minister, saying good evening, Merry Christmas, and may our Lord and Savior look kindly on me and with the utmost malice towards you and your filth. Bye. Hi, and welcome to Inside Voices, our weekly music scene interview show. I'm intense, I'm good at causing conflict, and I'm Jeffrey Crane. This week, we talk to a local musician by the name of Greg Oakes. Greg, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure, Jeffrey. I've been in bands from the area for the past couple of years. Uh, probably heard of them. They bands like uh, The Gunk. No. Uh, the Biggers. No. Slower and Slower. No. Uh, well, I played in the, the Paradise Eaters. No. The Emperor Has No Clothes line? No. Stinking Rich Little? No. Slime Bracket? Mm-mm. No, 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 wait, yes. No, wait, yes. Wait, n- no. Oh, well, uh, well, right now, anyway, uh, I've got a project that's unlike any of those. Uh, in fact, it's unlike anything I or anyone else has ever done. Ooh, very intriguing. What is it? Well, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, it's basically, um... It's kind of, uh, it's, uh, uh, wow, I, I, I don't even think I can explain it, actually. Please explain it. Oh, okay, um, okay, um, okay, uh, uh it's a tribute band that actually, uh, tips its hat to no fewer than three very distinct and very accomplished musical acts, uh, and the name of the group is Bell Biv Devo. Bell Biv Devo. Now, your, your group, of course, is not to be confused with Bell Biv Devo. No, not, not at all. Not even close. Uh, actually, uh, extremely close. It's extremely close. Why do you say that? Well, uh, I say that because our band covers songs from Bell and Sebastian, Bell Biv Devo, and Devo. That's a very diverse trio. What led you to choose those three bands? Well, uh, our band started out as a folk rap group, actually, called uh, Beat Cider. Beat Cider? Yes. Uh, beat as in the vegetable beat? No, 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 no. Beat as in the thing that you rap to. Oh, I see. Beat cider. Yes, yes. You mean cider as in on the side of something? No, 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 no. Cider as in the al- alcoholic apple juice. Uh, it's not that hard to understand. You're like the 10th person I've had this conversation with. Uh, I, it's frustrating. It's kind of like uh, the world's not ready for beat cider. Uh, beat, beat cider. 
Anyway, I guess the impetus for this was uh, getting ignored by a lot of promoters and clubs around town. Uh, so we finally decided uh, we needed a hook or a gimmick to get their attention. Why do you think you were getting ignored in that way? Oh, a wide variety of reasons, probably. Uh, not going to rule out the name. Uh, but I would say mainly it was the fact that our music wasn't very good. Really? You, you didn't like your own band's music? No, no. Most of our songs either sounded really bland and generic or really forced. Like on some of the songs, the folk aspect sounded like it was shoehorned in. And on other songs, the, the rap aspect wasn't really well integrated. I don't know what happened. You'd think really violent, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, homophobic, racist, ageist, anti-homeless people, anti-robot lyrics would, you know, blend well with mandolins. Whoa, whoa wait, wait a minute. Uh, that, that, that list of weird uh, like prejudices you just listed, why did you need all that stuff? Like, does it reflect your own views or your own philosophy? No, no, of, of course not. But that's what rap music is, right? Like, pretty much all of it. No! Of course, of course not. Like, what what rap or hip hop do you listen to? All of the greats: uh, Insane Clown Posse, Two Live Crew, D12, Grave Diggers, Unsolved Mysteries. That's uh, with three V's. Uh, Cole Carcass Crew, uh, also with three V's for some reason. Uh, Blood and Bling, Stabatha Christie, and my personal favorite group, Manson Family, except way worse and crazier. The Manson Family, except way worse and crazier? That's their name? Yeah, they're great. Yeah, you don't know them? No, no, they, no. You you got to check out their latest record. Uh, that's not a knife, this is a knife, and guess what I'm going to use it for? Uh, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but those are definitely not the greats. Uh, most of those groups I haven't even heard of. Well, whatever, man. I, I guess that's why we're having trouble catching on. Uh, we only appeal to the hardcore fans. Uh, anyway, that wasn't really working for us, so as the leader of the band, I had to think of something different for us to try. Uh, so we took a break right before I left, as I do every year for Belle Biv DeVoe Fest. Wait, wait Belle, Belle Biv DeVoe Fest? Is that like a, a festival devoted to Belle Biv DeVoe? Yeah, it's held every year on a boat in trans-international waters. Wait, what are trans-international waters? Well, you know how when you enter international waters, you're not beholden to the laws of any particular country. Sure, something like that. Well, trans-international waters is an area within international waters where not only can you do anything, no matter how terrible or illegal, without getting arrested, but you can actually c collect a huge cash sum from any country that even tries to bring you in. In fact, under the rule of trans-international waters, you're allowed to flog that country's president or prime minister without any punishment. It's amazing. Have you ever heard the prime minister of Norway as he's being flogged? It's hilarious. He makes this sound, it's kind of like... And what goes on at Belle Biv DeVoe Fest? Well, we spend a certain amount of time listening to and delivering seminars on the music of Belle Biv DeVoe. How much time? About 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Yeah, maybe a little less. Then we party for three days. I can't help but feel that the whole Belle Biv DeVoe thing is just kind of an excuse to get together and perform weird rituals. You got it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I might end up regretting asking you this, but what kind of partying do you do exactly? <laughs> so many kinds. Mm. You got high school principals smashing fire extinguishers and then setting themselves on fire. You got elves pretending to drive Harley Davidsons. You got armadillos everywhere, just everywhere. Uh, many of them wearing scarves or miniature canes attached to their claws. Hmm. So, so this gave you the idea for Belle Biv Devo. Yeah. 
This would have been a couple of days after the festival ended, right after I was released from the cage that I'd been floating inside of in the Pacific Ocean for the previous 48 hours. Uh, did you want to hear more about that? No. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and it just came to me like a DM from God, Bell Biv Devo, and that was it. I, I just knew it. Now, you guys have played two shows uh, in town so far, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They haven't really gone well. Uh, how so? Well, uh, we've been getting uh, booed mercilessly during every song. Why, why do you think that is? You know, I started thinking about this after the second show, and I think it has something to do with the set order. I realized it might be a good idea to play, say, a Bell Biv Devo song, then a Bell and Sebastian song, and then a Devo song. Well, what kind of sets are you playing now? Right now, we're playing entire albums in a row. Entire albums? Yeah, an entire Bell Biv Devo album, followed by an entire Bell and Sebastian album, and then an entire Devo album. So basically what happens is when we're covering an album from one group, the fans of the other two groups get kind of restless and angry. You've got the Bell and Sebastian fans who dress like 19th century dandies, uh, the Devo fans wearing the construction worker jumpsuits and cone hats, and then the Bell Biv Devo fans with the high top fades and the purple leather jackets and all that. And uh, they don't like each other. They don't like each other at all. In fact, uh, at our first show, a Bell Biv Devo fan stole a Devo fan's traffic cone and pushed it down over the head of one of the Bell and Sebastian fans. Yeesh, that is harsh. Yeah, and uh, to make it worse, the Bell and Sebastian fan's monocle cracked and it scratched his cornea. It was a bad scene. Well, why, why did you think that would ever work? You're playing three entire albums in one set, first of all. Like That must take at least like uh, two and a half hours. <laughs> well... Look, our sets reward those who are patient. And judging by the attendance of our last show, no one in this town has any patience. Okay, well, uh, that's our time for this week. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks for talking to me, Greg. Oh, it was my pleasure, Jeffrey. I'd be more than happy to come back in the future. Shut up. And now, a few selections from Regibald Eddie Tipp's classic book, A Guide to the Actor's Activity, page 3. People have asked me, what is the actor's goal? There are many answers to this question. My personal favorite is, to win a free pizza. Page 47. An actor must act as the infant cries, loudly and often while lying inside of a crib. Page 52. When acting, imagine that you are your character's dentist. Are you drilling? Is this a routine cleaning? Answer me. Page 86. When portraying Hamlet, ask yourself, how would Hamlet look with a mustache? Think of the many mustaches you have seen in your life. Did your father have a mustache? Did you know your father? Use this as a sense memory while I go grab a fresca. These have been a few selections from Regibald Eddie Tipp's classic book, A Guide to the Actor's Activity. Hello, 
and welcome to Treading the Boards, Kingston's only radio segment on drama, hosted by a woman who once hoisted George F. Walker on his own petard and eight other petards to boot. This week, we focus on the historical discovery of a long-lost first draft of Samuel Beckett's classic play, Waiting for Godot. Beckett's masterwork depicts two characters named Vladimir and Estragon who are trapped in an existential void, waiting for a figure named Gatto who never arrives. But a recent search of Beckett's former home has unearthed an earlier version of the play, now housed with the Beckett papers at Trinity College in Dublin, that features an additional character, a carefree rock and roll surfer named the Chipmeister. The Chipmeister's aggressive and irreverent attitude, according to notes from Beckett that were included with the draft, were intended to increase opportunities for Waiting for Godot merchandise, including lunchboxes, a soundtrack album, and wind-up dolls that spout what Beckett referred to as cash phrases. The differences in tone between this first draft and the final version are dramatic. Here, for instance, is the play's first scene with the added presence of the Chipmeister. <sighs> nothing to be done. I'm beginning to come round to that opinion. All my life I've tried to put it from me, saying, Vladimir, be reasonable. You haven't yet tried everything. And I resumed the struggle. So there you are again, Chipmeister. Yo, it's the Chipmeister here to hum 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 on your eardrum drums, doodlingers. What's the haps, existentialissimos? You bros look like you got some major angst in your pants. Has this god o dude showed up yet or what? Man, that guy is outed to the nth degree, am I right, nachos? I'm glad to see you back. I thought you were gone forever. Me too. <laughs> Me three, muchachos. I hooked up with this surf bunny named Daphne out in San Pedro for a couple weeks. Let's just say she made me see God oh so many times if you smell what the chipmeister's steaming. Together again at last. We'll have to celebrate this. But how? I'll tell you how. Why don't we chill on my houseboat? I just bought a brand new tattoo machine we can screw around with. But first we can inhale a little smoke on the water while I play smoke on the water. Another scene that differs drastically from its final form is the beginning of Act 2, which begins with Vladimir singing a song. A dog came in the kitchen and stole a crust of bread, then cook up with a ladle and beat him till he was dead. Dude, that tune is killer. I don't know about you, but I think it's time for a little collabo, my wabbo. Mind if I add some lyrics of my own to that jam? All right, here goes. Philosophers will philosophize About the sex in a dragon's eyes The heavy roller wears the crown The eagle mother wears a heavy frown It's the bedtime of the beast The sun is falling in the east Alright, what do you think, Vladimir? <laughs> I did not care for it But then again, one is not master of one's moods Uh... <laughs> All right, whatever. Hey, man, have you, have you seen my clip anywhere? Finally, we take a look at the play's final scene, which, in Beckett's original vision, is far more optimistic than the final scene we all know. Why don't we hang ourselves? With what? You haven't got a bit of rope? No. Then we can't. 
Of course we can't, bros. Look, I don't know about you guys, but I got a lot to live for. I got a sweet econoline van with Sabbath decals. I got a bodacious canine named Frito-Lay. And I'm totally pretending to get into yoga now. You suicidal broheims are threatening to put the kibosh on my highbosh. <clears throat> uh, well, shall we go? Pull on your trousers. What? Pull on your trousers. Yeah, come on, dude. Pull on your trousers. No one needs to see you live free and easy and flapping in the breezy. I ain't losing another bro to the tragedy of casual nudity. Well, shall we go? Yes, let's go. Okay, uh, dudes, are, are we going or what? This weed ain't gonna sell itself to a high school driving instructor. Let's move! Next time on Treading the Boards, we'll take a look at All Eyes on Me, Stephen Sondheim's new musical biography of Tupac Shakur, starring Nathan Lane as the late rapper and Bee-Wee Newirth as the notorious B.I.G. See you then! Hello. First of all, I would like to thank the host of this program, for allowing me this forum to express my feelings, and for helping me with the fluid issues I have experienced off and on for the last 45 seconds. I am a sufferer of attempted nasal suicide, in which the sinuses attempt to drown the nasal cavity out of a sense of deep shame. Thankfully, I have been consulting with a Peruvian holistic healer and bingo hall bouncer named Adelmo Watkins, who has finally convinced me that nasal excess is a sign of facial virility. Adelmo, you have hereby earned my patented wince of acknowledgement. Anyway, this is beside the point. I commandeer these airwaves in order to make an appeal to my wife Linda. I angered my dear Linda recently for reasons I cannot divulge, and for the last month I have resided in a large novelty slipper originally worn by an 80-foot-tall statue of Carol O'Connor. This experience has taught me some valuable lessons. For one, it has taught me that indulging in a variety of gourmet cheeses inside a mammoth piece of footwear can produce an odor remarkably similar to a form of foot fungus known as Spangler's Regret. I have also learned that, quite simply, I was wrong. Linda, I have decided to make my desperate appeal to you on a radio show that, judging by its production values, is broadcast from a supply closet inside an island prison. Linda, I have thought deeply and constantly about the complaints you lodged against me over the loudspeaker at that highway Denny's. In response, here are some promises I shall fulfill should you decide to let me re-enter your fragrant embrace. However, since these are personal and sensitive matters, I must be tactful and avoid certain details. I promise not to insult that particular object even if it happens to be placed in a particular area that makes a particular feature appear a particular shade of purple. I promise that on certain holidays, I will refrain from decorating certain crannies with certain kinds of paper that cause unsightly sticking in certain crevices. I promise that I will no longer live blog that activity I perform in the stairwell unless it earns me advertising money. I promise that no longer will I allow my bitterness over your adulterous affair with an unnamed 1984 Democratic presidential candidate, ruin another dinner theater performance of the uproarious farce Cheesecloth Underwear of Saskatchewan, 1952. I promise that a specific member of your extended family, who attempted to throw a bag of roast beef drippings at David Suzuki, 
will no longer serve as the inspiration for my unpublished novel, Puddle of Glory. I promise that no longer will I thrust upwards, slam downwards, spit sideways, burst diagonally, or cause a certain device to spin without apologizing. Finally, I promise that I will not shudder with such intensity at the moment of capitulation unless you have filed an official request form with my secretary, the lovely Credenza Malloy. Thus concludes my official appeal to you, my beloved Linda. Please take me back into your home, your heart, and your delicious vicinity. The pile of dirty towels collecting at the base of my novelty slipper home grows ever higher. That is all for now, but I would like to leave the listeners of this program with the following credo. Sexuality is very real, very fun, and very frightening. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Screensaver, the local show that gives you movie news from around the globe. Keep in mind that we are not a show devoted to screensavers. That show is tomorrow night at 8, and it's called The Silver Screen. I'm fully aware of how confusing that is, but we cannot switch names, because that would involve talking to Jeff, uh, the host of that show, and I, and I cannot do that. The, the explanation for that is a long story involving a briefcase full of drug money and a 400-pound Mexican wrestler named El Steno. So let's just drop it. Anyway, this week... Hey! Hey, I'm here. Everyone, shut up. I'm here. Uh, oh, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Someone someone appears to have stormed into the studio for some reason. Uh, excuse me, what... Oh, my God! Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Drink it in, gulp it down, and sweat it out. It's me. Ladies and gentlemen, I- I'm honored to have Lynn Beveridge, who is not only widely considered to be the, the biggest female action star in the world, but who just happens to be a native of our fair city, uh, making a surprise appearance on my show. Miss Beveridge, thank- thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, you should be thanking me. Um, I, I-, I, just-, I just did. Oh, good. And thank you for allowing me to allow you to be here. Uh, certainly. Uh, now, now, Lynn, what, what films would you say you're most famous for? Oh, probably the Punch Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kick Trilogy. Right. And the Gouge movies one through five. Out of all those movies, would you say you have a personal favorite? If I had to pick one, I'd say Gouge 2. The eyes have it, or at least they did before they were gouged out. That is, that is a good one. Now, Lynn, would you say growing up in Kingston made you what you are today? Well, I like to think of myself as, like, a dictator. I'm like a dictator of dreams. I make these movies, people watch them, and dream about what they could be. So it's like I'm telling them what to dream. Kind of like, you'll never be me, but you should want to be me, so you should try as hard as you can to be me, because at least then they can say, well, at least I tried and failed and got badly hurt, instead of living my life all happy and bored. That's very inspirational. That's what I keep saying. And you know, any good dictator needs someone to grind under her boot. And that's what Kingston is for me. It's the worm that I grind into the mud while I laugh and chew on some porcupine jerky. Uh, indeed, your hatred of Kingston is well known. Uh, in fact, you once tried to, to pay to have the entire city demolished. I did. Uh, when was that again? When I was eight years old. I raised $15 by selling lemonade and bowls of creamed corn. People thought I was joking. I even took it to the mayor. That cretin laughed in my face and tousled my hair. But I showed him, because 15 years later, he died of old age. Hmm. So, uh, what brings you back to Kingston now? 
Well, I'm really going all out to promote my new movie, Backshooter. Backshooter? Sounds intense. It is. I've got the title role, and we've also got Matt LeBlanc as my husband, Detective Johnny Update. Ooh. James Cromwell as himself as an alien. Wow, that sounds hilarious. Why? And rounding things out, we've got Surrey Cruz. Wow, uh, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes' daughter? She's in this? Yeah, but she doesn't know that, so maybe don't tell anyone. So, what is Backshooter about? Well, I play a disgraced ex-cop turned renegade who specializes in shooting people in the back. Why does your character do that? Uh, because it's easier. Have you ever tried shooting someone in the front? They can see you. That's not fair. Of, of course. So anyway, she's pursuing this big female drug kingpin named Alvarado, who made out with her husband without asking her first. I, I, I'm sorry, without a asking her first? Yeah, well, they have an open relationship, but they have to be upfront with each other. And so my character sees this not asking thing as a real betrayal. Well, uh, then shouldn't she be mad at her husband? She is, but they make up pretty quickly near the beginning. Their relationship's been a bit rocky, but they really love each other. You can see that they've had a lot more happy moments than unhappy. And you get a clear sense of this from what you're shown of their relationship. Yeah, kind of. Well, no, not really. That's more just like a backstory I created for them. Hmm. So, wait a minute. The entire movie is just this, like, mild love triangle where the main character is just kind of annoyed that this person made out with her husband? Oh no, there's more going on than that. See, it turns out that her husband had been recruited by Alvarado as a mule carrying heroin across the border. But he was like a double, triple agent and was tipping me off about it the whole time. So, is, is that a twist that comes up later in the movie? Nah, not really. That's just some backstory I made up. Wait, that's backstory too? Well, yeah. As an actor, you've got to make up motives for your characters. Otherwise, nothing would make sense. Okay, okay, yeah. But if all of this apparently important plot information is just backstory, then how does the movie make any sense? Well, you'd have to take that up with the screenwriter. Who's the screenwriter? Uh, I am. Well, uh, then let me ask you. How much... What percentage of the plot is just backstory? Mm, some percent. Well, how much of the plot is actually depicted on screen? Um, the majority, uh, minus five storylines. Well, so, so how many scenes are actually in this movie? About four. About four? Well, three. So how long is this movie? It's 90 minutes. What? W wait a minute, What what is going on in these scenes? Well, I find out that my husband made out with Alvarado. I forgive him pretty quickly. Then in the next scene, I go to look for Alvarado, but guys keep jumping in front of me and trying to kill me. Uh, her henchmen? Yeah, probably. So I have to kill them. Let me guess, by shooting them in the back? Yeah. Wait, how did you... Oh, right, never mind. And then eventually I find Alvarado and we have our showdown. That takes about an hour. How is that possible? What goes on in that scene? Well, we do a lot of improvising. We talk for a while about where to get good yarn in Houston, which is where the movie is set, probably. And then you kill her at the end, right? By shooting her in the back? Yeah. Wait, how did you... Oh, right. Never mind. So, so what possessed you to write a movie like this? Well, I'm sick of doing movies where there's some dumb character arc or conflict or whatever. I'll admit, I don't care about plot or whatever. 
I'm sick about having to wait to win. I just wanted to spend an entire movie winning the way America always does. Uh, okay, so about the cast then. You've got LeBlanc as your husband, uh, James Cromwell. Actually, now that I think about it, Cromwell got cut from the final version. He was good, but we had to cut the movie down to get an NC-17 rating. Wait, 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 wait. You had to cut the movie down to get an NC-17? Well, what was the original rating? The ratings board initially gave us a CT-94, which stands for culturally toxic for anyone under the age of 94. Usually, when a movie gets a CT-94, all prints are either burned or thrown down an open sewer, in the hopes of killing whatever race of half-men, half-goats might be dwelling there. Interesting. Now, who does Surrey Cruz play? Um, her role is crucial. Wait, wait a minute. Please don't tell me she plays the drug kingpin. I can neither confirm nor deny that she plays the drug kingpin. Wink, wink. Oh, that is... Oh, that, that's ridiculous. Why would you cast her in that role? Well, she auditioned. She, she auditioned? Yeah, and I liked what I saw. What did you see? Her parents writing me a check for $12 million. Oh, that's just sleazy. They bought you off. Well, that's a sleazy way of putting it. I prefer to say I sold myself to them. Why would they even want her to play a drug dealer? They wanted to build her range as an actress, I guess. And I gotta say, Suri's performance is really scary. And by scary, I mean sad. And by her performance, I mean her life. Oh, man. Uh, but hey, I haven't told you my catchphrase yet. You want to hear it? Sure. Okay. Backshooter. Guess who's back? I'm about to shoot. Hmm. Well, that is catchy. Uh, by the way, how did you get in here? You, you need a pass card to get in at this time of night. Oh, I stole one from your guard outside after I overpowered him. What? What are, you, what are you talking about? What guard? Your guard. You know, the guy outside in the blue parka and the white toque. Guard? Oh my god, that wasn't a guard, that was Alan. He, he's the host of the show that comes after mine. Oh, I guess that explains why he seemed like such a bad guard. He had his back turned to me and was kind of just talking on his phone. So what did you do to him? I shot him in the back. Oh, my God. He might be alive, though. How many times did you shoot him? Twelve-ish, eleventy-something. I got afraid and excited. Oh, my God. Well, uh, I guess we'll take a quick break for some commercials right now. Uh, you probably won't be hearing the show Stifled Voices tonight, uh, because its host, Alan Milken, is uh, almost certainly dead. And to think, he was only one day away from retirement. Really? Well, no, I've just always wanted to say that. They took her name. Shut up, Alvarado! They took her reputation. Alvarado, I told you to shut up! They took her dignity. Hey! Hey! Alvarado, I'm over here, dummy! They had her up against the wall. Hey, know who I hate? Alvarado. Oh, hi, Alvarado. I didn't see you standing there. Oh, wait. I'm lying. I totally did see you standing there. I hate you. And when you're up against the wall. Hey, Alvarado. Here's your anti-Valentine. It's what I give to people I hate. The only thing to do is fight back. No, no. Please. Don't shoot me in the back. Sorry, pal. It's too late for you to back out. Lynn Beveridge is back shooter. Guess who's back? I'm about to shoot. Rated NC-17 in theaters March 18th, 1997.
None of the scenes in this trailer are actually in the movie. Ah, yes. You like that cupcake? There's so much frosting on that cupcake, isn't there? Almost eclipsing the height of the cupcake itself, no? That is no accident, young stranger. I can see you are an outsider in this land, so allow me to explain the ritual of the cupcake in our culture. At our celebrations, there are cupcakes. Cupcakes galore. Cupcakes as moist and delicious and plentiful as the mind can comprehend. Look to your left. What do you see? Yes, that's right. Cupcakes. Look to your right. What sight does your eye take in? No, not Jeff from accounting, you insolent fool. To the right of that. What do you see? That's right. You see the cupcake. Many say the cupcake is like currency in our world. I cannot speak to such things. What I do know is that to hold a bash, an extravaganza of this magnitude, without offering several bushel baskets full of succulent cupcakes, is akin to spitting into your guests' open eyes or bleeding into their open souls. Is it enough, then, you ask, merely to offer a variety of cupcakes to your guests and leave it at that? Your question carries the unmistakable stink of malevolence and corruption. Please fetch your drugstore cowboy promotional penknife and extract your blackened tongue from the petri dish of ignorance you call a mouth. The mere existence of the cupcake is not a sufficient accoutrement to your staff party or anti-ventriloquism convention. You must ensure that a correct amount of delicious, decadent frosting girds the cupcake like the belt around your uncle's favorite pair of buffet pants. According to the tradition of our people, the frosting must be of a sufficient thickness to equal the despair a Norwegian tollbooth operator feels when his lucky rope frays and snaps against the lowest rafter of his apartment. Who will talk to him now? Who will offer him solutions to the unsolvable problem of consciousness? Only the cupcake. But the frosting. Do you see? The frosting must be thick as molasses, thick as thieves, thick as a brick, thick as thick as a brick, that Jethro Tall album. Only then shall redemption for all people in all recreational kickball leagues be possible. And yet, and yet, and yet the young ones, they are of a different mind. Change is inevitable, this I accept. Yet their beliefs regarding the thickness of the icing can scarcely be believed. Some of the young ones scoff at their elders and suggest that the frosting need only equal the depth of a Scottish bodybuilder's love for his oldest tank top. An absurd proposition, says I, one that flies in the face of thousands of years of tradition. I can tell you this, such a belief will only court the destruction of the heavenly tribunal of pastries, which includes Zeus, Moses, and Molly Ringwald. If you desire the truth from me, then I must tell you. Were I in your position, I would flee this place and return to your place of origin before the internal strife of our people swallows you in its wake. But before you leave, 
I would recommend taking with you one of the cupcakes with butterscotch in the middle. You shall thank and praise me, and more importantly, so will your taste buds. Now away, child. Away. Hmm. All right. Uh, thanks for coming out, everyone. I-, I hope you had a good time. Boo! I did not. Boo! I did not. Boo! Excuse me. Why are you booing? I boo because I care. My name is Reginald Reggie Naldi Aberdeen. I am the city's foremost critic of public literary readings. You may remember me from this year's Writers' Festival, when I ran naked through Joyce Carol Oates' reading. Or from 2001, when I ran naked through Joyce Carol Oates' living room. Now I am here to pass judgment on this delightless debacle that you so daringly refer to as a haunch. The only thing launched during that ordeal was the roasted eel I consumed at luncheon. I am implying that it made me vomit. Yeah, no, I, I gathered that. Well, what, what makes you say that? What was so bad about this event? Dear lad, this event was an affront to the senses on every conceivable level. The set design was atrocious with this cash register this unsightly organ of commerce distracting the eye away from the magic of literature. Keep in mind Oscar Wilde's typically erudite verses. Art and money do not mix, so shut your mouths, you stupid hicks. Did he, did he use the word hicks? He tried to cross over to a country audience. Did not take... But but set design, this is just a reading. Oh, just? Just a reading? Just? Just? You're a bust. You and your pathetic standards. Was Revolver just a pop album? Was Ulysses just a novel? Am I just the victim of eight different investment scams? We must strive, dear boy, until we create one of the great novels of the century. Or until we've sunk our entire life savings into a product called pant grease? Okay, uh, a point taken. Uh, what else was wrong? Virtually everything else. The cadence and delivery of the readings, the pace of the entire affair, lugubrious. Lugubrious. You moved us from segment to segment like cattle at an auction. We are your buyers, and your words are the wares you hawk. You must move with lightning speed to entice us to purchase. So we we should have talked like auctioneers? Precisely! In all aspects literary, one must move to obscure rather than clarify. Only then shall your audience be ready to follow you into battle, or buy any of the hundreds of boxes of pant grease that line your basement rec room. So you didn't find any of this interesting or fun? One thing I did enjoy was when I interrupted you at the end. 
I am incredibly interested in everything I'm saying right now. Otherwise, you get a D in presentation, a D plus in quality of content, an F in overall viscosity, and a D minus for the overall viscosity joke I just told, which did not work in the slightest. But, but, but you told it, not me. One must be in control of one's audience, dear boy. I'll never forget the Margaret Lawrence reading I attended, at which she fitted each attendee with a shock collar. The hideous shriek she gave as she jolted us again and again shall remain with me always in my nightmares and my morning fantasies. Uh, okay, so you hate the reading, uh, but it's technically not over yet. Is there anything I could do right now that would redeem it? The very question of the hour, my son. My brother owns a rather unique business located on the outskirts of the city. Were you to read the following copy in front of your acolytes, a passing grade is yours. Uh, this is really low. Okay. Choosing the carpet that's right for your home is an essential part of today's ugly world. So why choose a carpet that will shatter your spirit if you land on it weird? Come to us at Jerry's Used Carpets. We have so much carpet that we're a little ashamed of how much carpet we have. Remember to bring your own cheesecake, because we are not a bakery. Wait a minute, do you really have a brother? You've been had, monkeys! Uh, well, thanks for coming, everyone. Welcome back to the Canuck Radio Network. To those of you who are just tuning in, we are in overtime in this battle between the Vancouver Canucks and the San Jose Sharks. Moments ago, Sharks forward Patrick Marlowe appeared to end the game with a goal two minutes into OT. However, the puck did go in off his skate, so officials in Toronto are now reviewing the goal to determine whether or not there was a distinct kicking motion. If there was, the game will continue... If not, the Sharks will get the win and that extra point in the standings. It's been a really exciting game so far, Steve. So much skating and shooting has gone on here, and I think I noticed a couple of the players shouting at each other like they were really mad. One of them seemed to say the F word and the B word. But you know, regardless of the outcome of this game, here are some things to take away from this. These players are paid to play this game, some of them are married, and some of them might be wearing propeller-style beanies under their helmets. We just have no way of knowing for sure. A uh, typically probing analysis, man. In any case, the fans here in GM Place are getting increasingly anxious with each passing second. This is a very important game for the Canucks. The players here are really getting restless too, Steve. You can just imagine the stress of the situation causing the propellers on top of their beanies to spin wildly. Please stop talking about the beanies, Matt. Oh, referee Darren Dreger just ended his discussion with the officials in Toronto. It looks like he's about to announce his ruling. Let's hear it. Upon further review... Of the last five years, I have determined that they have been the happiest of my life. Hmm. 
This is unexpected. His announcement so far kind of has the tone of a Billy Crystal romantic comedy, which is a refreshing change of pace. This is exactly what the game needs more of, Steve. Leslie, ever since I met you, I've been so in love, not only with you, but with life itself. The path I was on before meeting you was a dark and lonely one, unlit by passion or inspiration. But I am on a different road now, and it is one I can only imagine traveling with you for the rest of our lives. Oh no. This is poorly timed at best. Referee Darren Dreger appears to be proposing to his longtime girlfriend. Who, it should be noted, has run down to the ice from her seat in the stands and who is gazing at him and crying in a way that reminds me of a young Guy Lafleur. A very confusing statement, Matt. Anyway, referee Dreger has now produced a box from his pocket which presumably houses an engagement ring of some kind. Leslie, upon reviewing my mental replay of the last five years, I have determined that there is, in fact, a distinct loving motion. And so, will you marry me and make me the victor in the overtime of life? Aww, I am dying here. Can you even believe this, Steve? This is so sweet. I suppose it is, in a way, Matt. Although the sweetness of this moment is strongly undercut by the sheer number of fans in this building who are raining verbal abuse upon referee Dreger. I really wish he'd chosen a different moment to do this. Well, Steve, as someone who loves Hollywood romance but has never really been sold on the whole hockey thing, this is officially the greatest game of Hockney I've ever seen. Did you say Hockney? Whatever. Well, it appears that Leslie has accepted his proposal and the two are now kissing and embracing each other. Meanwhile, I should point out that no ruling has been made on Marlowe's goal and fans here are beginning to throw things onto the ice. Tiny novelty hockey sticks, copies of Rick Springfield's autobiography, piles of jerk chicken for some reason. One person actually threw a stand-up bass. You know, Steve, that's the kind of thing that says more about the person who threw it than the situation itself. Uh, for once I agree, Matt. Meanwhile, referee Dreger and his now fiancé appear to be leaving the arena, with referee Dreger carrying his bride-to-be, like Richard Gere carrying Deborah Winger in An Officer and a Gentleman. Which reminds me, Steve, have I told you about my idea for Winger on Ice? It's Deborah Winger movies reenacted on skates. Imagine Kurt Browning playing the mechanical bull from Urban Cowboy. What charisma! What sass! Uh, you've mentioned this multiple times on air, Matt, and this is the first time it's ever been relevant. Anyway... Complete chaos has erupted here at GM Place. The atmosphere is very much like a bloody coup of some kind in a third world country. Gorillas now roam the stands, kidnapping whoever appears to be a supporter of what is now being referred to as the Dreger regime. Meanwhile, a working government has been erected, although many consider it to be a puppet government beholden to the United States. In any case, I guess this is as good a time as any to sign off on behalf of the Canuck Radio Network. Oh, look, the choppers have arrived. Pick me. Steve is an insurrectionist. Oh, come on, Matt. And now for another edition of Half-Remembered Theater. In this installment, a man partially remembers the plot to E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So, of course, you know E.T. Like, it was a very popular movie. Um, like, one of the more popular of all time. It was uh, 
It's in like the top five um, highest grossing movies of all time, that kind of thing. And uh, and so at the end, like what happens is, um, so you've got the alien E.T., and that stands for extraterrestrial. And so he's been living with Elliot, who is the boy that found him after he landed. I don't remember if he crashed or if he visited Earth to collect things or learn things. But um, so the scientists have, they almost have caught him and he was almost dead. And then Elliot stole him. Um, I think he, uh, like he didn't know how to drive, but he stole a Jeep and crashed it through these uh, padlocked uh, iron fences. And he stole E.T. from the scientist guys who were going to kill him. And, uh, and so he and then Drew Barrymore as his sister, uh, they decided to uh, just pedal away on their bikes. And eventually they pedaled so hard that uh, they ran into a river. And, uh, well, okay, here, my, my memory's a little shaky here, but I think what happens is that as uh, E.T. is drowning... He looks up at Elliot, who has managed to like climb to the shore, and he's like, I always wanted to love you, but you wouldn't let me. Let this be a lesson to your people. I have died for your sins. And then you just, he die, he goes down under the water, and you see this gurgle. And then uh, Elliot hears in the distance, um, I'll never forgive you. I think that's how it ends. Um, but I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but I liked it. A tradition of excellence. Our goal is to cover those local stories that matter to you, that impact your lives. Kingston's number one name in TV news for over 40 years. We know the stories that matter to you because we're members of the community. The best in local news, sports, and weather. Hi, I'm Shane Chase, your trusty local weatherman. And I'm a convicted murderer. Coverage you can trust from people you can trust. I killed a man in a bar fight. He kept harassing my girlfriend. She kept telling him he was sexy and she wanted to go home with him, but he just wouldn't take her incredibly subtle hint to get lost. Instead, he kept hitting on her. WADT News. If you're watching us, you're already home. Gonna be windy tomorrow. (laughs) Yep. Guilt. So much guilt. Guilt. 